This episode of the PC Perspective Podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Even the best mobile app won't work without the right payments API. That's where the Braintree V.0 SDK comes in. One amazingly simple integration gives you every way to pay. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash PCPer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode number 388, being recorded February 24th. 2016. I'm Alan I'm Josh Walrath. Kukukachu. And I'm Sebastian Peake. Uh, so you can uh, follow this podcast at pcpro.com slash podcast. You can send us awesome, hopefully, emails if you uh, want to get a hold of us at podcast at pcpro.com. Uh, you can send us, uh, talk to us on the Twitters, twitter.com slash pcpro, or you can head up to the boss at twitter.com slash Ryan Shrout. He is currently on an airplane from Barcelona. Right? Barcelona. Yeah, something. I yeah, think he might be getting in his couple, couple hours of sleep before the, the airplane. Oh, okay. All right, so um, he was out covering Mobile World Congress, and a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about, hopefully with Sebastian's helpful guidance since he's been following that stuff closer than I have, all that awesome mobile upcoming goodness, like phones and other mobile things. Uh, you, if you want to know when we're going to record something live, like this podcast, or like other events, which happen from time to time, you can subscribe to our spam, I mean uh, mailing list. Uh, we do not spam you with this list. The only thing we use... Um, this list for is just to let people know we send out a blast before we go to record something. Uh, it's pcpro.com slash subscribe. And uh, all we want is just like your name and your email. And uh, we don't bug you for anything except for uh, upcoming recordings there. So fear not. Next. You good? Okay. Um, I don't know. I'm afraid. Are you afraid? Feeling for your yes. life yet? Uh, next up, if you happen to feel generous, you can go over to, uh, <laughs> I'm feeling generous. You can go over to patreon.com slash PC per where we have our Patreon campaign running. This is the kind of stuff that helps us like keep the lights on, pay the bills, generate more content, potentially hire on some more folks. All depends on, uh, what our potential budget ends up becoming. Uh, we have a bunch of details on the Patreon page as far as, like, what amounts lead to what. And I think we're actually close to the next goal. Yeah. We have a goal at 2000 a month. I believe so. And that is to bring on some more part-time people. Oh, can I get a lackey? Uh, you need a lackey? Really? I hope not. Well, you know, everyone needs a lackey. Okay. How many years do you have to wait until you get your own intern? I feel like it's been enough time. Ken needs an intern. Thanks. I, I think so, too. It's like... Uh, but you don't have to pay those. Is exactly. It like, is it like Russian doll interns? <laughs> they just, like, keep... You, you can know, order so them from him, Russia, teach yeah. Him the, teach him the Ken Fu, and then he can replace you. I see. So it'll be some some new kid that's, like, starting college... We'll show up at our door one day. We will hand him a vat of mineral oil. Mm-hmm. I like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So uh, that's, you know, 
that's where you can contribute to us if you would be so bold or generous. And I think one of those things might uh, end up making us do a Josh Tech. I don't know. Yeah. There have been some promises. that I'm, I'm putting that one on Ryan. Okay. I don't want anything I- to do with this Josh Tech thing. Late night promises Late night. In, in whispered voices. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, all right, well, let's jump right into it. Uh, we can review. Oh, hey, this one's me. First up is uh, my review of the Samsung Portable T3. It is not the T1. This was the T1. What happened to the T2? Uh, they didn't want to call it T2 because T2 does not translate well in some other country language. Also, that was their thingies. excuse. No, that was the not reason. The name that it, the fact that it's the name of a Terminator movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all about Terminator. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think, well, they didn't want to get sued. But wasn't yeah. T, wasn't T three also a? Yeah, but it did really poorly in theaters. So who no cares? one they don't care about T three, right? T two was an iconic film. So yeah. Okay. Originally, the name was the Samsung T two Judgment Day. I see. I see. Yeah. So. Then they got sued, and then they couldn't do that. All right, so uh, T2, successor to the... Or T3, dang it. <laughs> now you guys are making me do it. Hey, right. they were, it's like Windows. They had Windows 8, they had Windows 8.1, <sighs> and now they have Windows 10. Actually, when, was, this article, when this article went up for like the first, I think, 20 minutes that it was live, it said SSD T2. <laughs> <laughs> Someone in the comments, thank goodness, was like, uh, isn't it supposed to be the T3? Um because you know the, there was all these twos in, in the byline for it that it just you know kind of flowed um, so this is in fact two terabytes it's a pretty small thing it's like definitely smaller than like your typical one or two terabyte external hard disk drive um, USB-C connector on it as opposed to the uh, type B connector that was on the T1 um, I haven't seen anybody that makes a short like this was the cable from the the T1 it was nice flat short cable for USB 3. I don't think anybody makes a USB Type C to Type A short flat ribbon yet. I found some. I ordered one. It was not USB 3. It was USB 2. Wow. That was, that was a down. Yeah. First thing I did, I opened up the package and looked in the connector of the Type A because you could see the roll of five extra pins in the back. It did not have those extra pins. So you're kind of stuck with a longer cable, so if you preferred the shorter cable of the previous model, well, you know, I mean, it comes with a Velcro thing on it, so you could effectively make it a short cable if you just kind of, like, keep it bundled in the in the Velcro thing. It's probably a better idea they shipped a longer cable, considering no one has Type-C cables, so it's not like the solution was, oh, just plug in a longer one that you already have. Yeah, and um, and I was trying to use, like, I had been using the, the T1 frequently, like, moving stuff back and forth to work that was, like, any kind of larger files, and... Um, my PC at home doesn't have a front panel USB 3 because it's an older style case. So I had to keep going around to the back of the PC and plug it in. And it was kind of silly to have just like, a you know, this T1 hanging on the end of the cable just like sitting out the back of the PC case. <laughs> like it looked, you know, kind of silly. Anyway, um, so there's not, this is not like super groundbreaking though uh, as far as, like a revision. It is using 48-layer VNAND uh, compared to the previous model, which was not, right? Because you need 48 layers to be able to fit 2 terabytes onto what is actually an MSATA SSD, 
which is what's inside of this guy. It's basically uh, just like how the T1 was. This is just an MSATA SSD with an adapter board that goes through a NAS media chip. It basically just converts from SATA to USB. Uh, what used to, what used to be called the artist formerly known as USB 3.0, which is now USB 3.1 uh, Gen 1. I five, hate that term so much. Five gigabit. Yeah. Why is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> basically, if you just connect to it over Type C, even though it's the same exact like the thing going across the wiring is basically the same. Uh, as a matter of fact, they have not even revised the chip. That's doing the conversion. So the the converter, the Asmedia chip in the T1 is the same chip that's in the T3, even though the T3 is technically uh, USB 3.1, Gen 1. So is it o- is it overclocked? Uh, no, nothing's overclocked. Uh, basically, gives you the same performance as the T1. Uh, the big difference here, though, is that the capacity is, maximum availability is now two terabytes instead of one terabyte. So. So it's a capacity bump and a Type C connector. So type capacity a. bump, Type C connector. They made it, and this might be this might seem like a disadvantage to some people. Kind of, uh, it's twice as heavy, uh, and it's not because the bits weigh so much or any kind of silly joke like that. But it, the the T one, it was almost like too light, like it was just this, you know, it was like not even substantial, like you. If you had it in your pocket, you might not even realize it was in your pocket. Pretty sure some of these probably went through laundry and stuff like that, I would imagine. Um, so they kind of changed the shape of it a little bit. We have some... I, I took a couple of pictures here to try to show the difference. Let's see if I can find them. Oh, the other way. There we go. So, you know, they made the new one a little bit thicker. It's not oval anymore. It's just like, uh, you know, it's actually will sit flat on the desk and not kind of sit there and rock. Um, so they just kind of made it, you know, a little bit more substan- substantial of a device. Still, you know, it's a nice metal housing to it. It does have a nice feel to it. Um, you know, it, it feels less uh, less like a toy than the T1 did because it basically did feel like a toy. You know, I was looking um, at the specs. It's According to Samsung, it's 51 grams. That's only It's less than two ounces, so that's still really light. So that T1, I've never held one. It must have been really light. The T1 is, I think, 26 ounces. Oh, boy. Grams. Or 26 grams. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 26 ounces is over a pound. Um, yeah, so what you have inside of here is... Uh, and this is still... This is still using the... Uh, MSATA? Uh, sorry. Yeah, it's still MSATA. Uh, still just like the last one. It's amazing to me that they are fitting um, two terabytes worth of capacity here into four flash packages on an MSATA SSD. Uh, granted, each one has 16 dies in it, so they are stacking them way higher than any other brand stacks them, typically. Um, but that is just amazing to me. Um and then there's that same... Just how thin what? the actual dies are in there. If you've got 16 of them stacked... Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And they're not... It's not like they're a Lego block. Yeah. The packages are not any thicker than normal, like normal flash packages on an SSD. So it's not like they have to make the packaging thicker. Just one thin little wafer. Yeah. And, and they're even 3D. <laughs> yeah. And they're VNAND. 
so think about that. Like they're you know it's forty eight layer VNAN. So in each wafer, <laughs> like so what's that? Forty eight times sixteen. Yeah. Like that's how, many, how many layers of bits is in each package. Um, Crazy world we live in. Yeah. Somebody ought to give out tickets. So Shit, aside, buy one. aside from the added weight uh, and the uh, different style cable, which both of those things Samsung claimed were due to feedback. Like, people didn't like the short cable as much, and people didn't like the feel of the T1, like, being almost too light. Um, another thing, probably driven by feedback, is the way that this security configuration works for the T3. So the T1 came out of the box in its locked mode. You plugged it into a computer for the first time. All you saw was, like, a 150 megabyte partition that just had, like, the unlocker app, and you had to launch that and put a little icon down your down by the tray, right down by the clock, and then it would present you with, you know, here, do your setup, type in your password for the first time, that kind of thing, and, you know, get it to the point where you're using that as a mechanism to unlock it and get access to the larger partition that had all the actual stuff you were storing. Um, you could disable it after that, like you could intentionally say, okay, I don't want to do the password, you type in your password one last time, and it basically unlocks it and leaves it unlocked until you've relaunched that app. And then you can, like, turn the protection back on. The T3 comes the opposite way. So it comes with the full capacity available. And then the unlocker app, in this case, it's more like the activate, they call it the security enabler now, as opposed to the thing that was the unlocker. Um, you run that for the first time, and then you can then make set a password and make the drive lockable. And then when it is lockable, T1 and T3 act the same way. As soon as the drive loses power, it relocks. So as soon as you disconnect it from the system, you go to plug it back into anything the next time, and you know you just see the you just see the locked partition, um, which is a smaller partition, like 150 meg or so. Now what I like about that is you can actually put like a you know if found please return to so and so like text file on that partition. So if somebody does find it, like they're not going to get into it, and it's only going to be 150 megabyte external drive for them. Um, and as far as I understand, there's no way to just, like, go in and reset this thing, either. Like, so once you've locked it, like, you better know your password, because either you better know your password, or you better know how to brute force AES-256, <laughs> um, which is kind of hard. kind of takes a really, really, really If you really know how to do that second one, I think some people want to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that would want to talk to you if you know how to do that second one. Um, so, uh, that's how the security stuff works. Uh, pricing... Now, there were some people in the comments that were complaining about, like, the pricing of this guy. But it's still way cheaper than the T1 came out at. It's like almost... I think it's like around half the price of the T1. It came out not too long ago. Um, so, you're running around... It starts at $0.52 cents a gig. Smallest capacity is 250 gig. Um, works all the way up to... 42, maybe 43, right on the line between those two. It's like 43 cents a gig for 850 bucks for two terabytes. Um, so for an external drive, you know, it's really not a bad cost per gig. Like, you'd be paying a little bit of a price premium for an MSATA form factor of a capacity of two terabytes, of which I think this is the only thing that exists right now. Like, this particular model of uh, an 850 Evo, which is actually what's in there. Um, you know, and you're getting it in a nice housing, and it's external drive, and it has security that's easily enabled. 
And all that stuff kind of justifies an extra 10 cents a gig, really, in my mind. Um, and I don't think there's any external thing that's like can compete with this. Solid state external up to two terabytes of storage for, so. for that price. Like I don't think anybody even is even coming close to that. Um, Three-year warranty, and uh, that's about it for this guy. Um, I gave it a gold award. It wasn't super groundbreaking. It was basically just you know an update to the previous one. I personally actually like the lighter weight and the shorter cord, so I think I'm going to do a little science experiment here since it's the same chip on both. I think I'm going to make myself like the only 2-terabyte Samsung T1 in existence. You would. Just because I can. So... Hey, and if I do it, maybe I'll make a guide and be like, hey, anybody that bought a T1N and a T3 and really likes the other one. Yeah, we'll get a lot of hits on that Yeah, one. so so many hits. So many people will want to do that. You'll have had to have bought two different... Oh, and uh, I use this since this is the same chip and it's, uh, motherboards have matured some since then. And we had a motherboard here that had most of the USB controllers on it. Uh, and then I, I just kind of use this as like a little mini science experiment to see, okay, what does the throughputs actually look like for different USB controllers? And um, so as I went through them, they're pretty much like the same. There's some minor differences in the write speeds, like within 40 or 50 megabytes a second. But you're pretty much seeing 450 meg per second, regardless of which kind of USB controller you were using. And I tested Intel USB 3.1, Asmedia USB 3.1. I even tested Intel USB 3.0. And since this is the five or 3.1 Gen 1, technically it's the same throughput, and it actually performed almost the exact same on Intel USB 3.0. Um, where I found an, an interesting thing is I, all those other ones I was testing was just with the Windows 10 inbox driver, no special custom driver or anything like that. And then for the Asmedia controller, which was on that Asus add-in card, uh, initially I tested it with just the Windows driver, just whatever it picked it up as when the when that card was installed. Um, then I tried the actual Asmedia driver for that card that's supposed to work for specific to Windows 10. Uh, and performance actually, like, went to crap, basically. It was doing, like, 350 meg per second at, at the most, um... And then when I tried to copy some files to it, it was doing some really weird kind of like going fast and then going slow stuff on me. Um, so needless to say, I uninstalled that driver pretty quick. Alan broke it again. Uh, well, no, it's it was the driver was basically breaking it. As soon as I uninstalled the driver and just went back to the Windows inbox driver, it, performance just went right back to max. So um, it's kind of a data point for people that tend to always want to install the like driver from the manufacturer for something as opposed to just the built-in Windows driver. In this case, USB stuff, uh, under Windows 10 at least, it looks like the Windows driver, just the built-in one, tends to be the best um, for all this stuff so far. Um, and if you're stuck on USB 2, uh, this is actually the fastest I've ever seen something talk over USB 2 before, uh, uh, so far, because it's doing like almost 44 meg per second I've never seen USB 2. So 480 megabits divided. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's like the actual file copy like that Windows was reporting was like 40.8 megabytes per second exactly. Like for writes and reads. It's basically just obviously bus limited. Um, but that's pretty impressive speed for USB 2. Um, 
I would much rather get like 450 meg per second of USB 3. But hey, and then uh, Ken plugged it into his MacBook and got almost the exact same numbers that we saw out of the T1. Oh, I, I thought it was going to be something like <clears throat> Beelzebub came out of the keyboard as he plugged it in and said, I'm sorry, that's just too powerful for this infernal machine. And Yeah. No? No. Did like Damn. 402 meg per second writes, 427 meg per second reads. sweet speedometers. Yeah, those little speedometers. In the, he was totally redlining it. Yeah. Usually. In, in, the, in the black magic test. It was faster than his internal SSD. Uh, no, his SSD is quick in that in that MacBook. Oh, okay. It's one of those NVMe ones, probably or something. It's HDI, but it's PCIe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Gen two. Yeah, it's yeah. Gen, like two lanes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, next review up is oh hey Sebastian did this one. Logitech Artemis Spectrum G nine thirty three and G six thirty three headsets. That's right. These headsets. Actually, I'm holding a pair right here. They're just nice slightly off camera. There we go. They're like changing With colors. One hand. They are. There's What's different the color modes. These are RGB. This 933 model I'm holding is wireless. So the 633 differs because it's wired only. You can use it with a USB or with a 3.5 uh, millimeter like standard analog audio cable. Both of these can be used that way. The 933 comes with a 2.4 megahertz. Gigahertz? Wireless adapter. And it's actually kind of cool because the adapter and the battery store inside the earpieces. So, like, there are these doors that come off. You can get to the battery. You can get to the earpiece. Store it that way. Another cool thing about how this is very self-contained, the uh, microphone just folds out of the left earpiece and down. (gasps) And and when you want to mute, and you can extend it and move it around. When you want to mute the mic, you just flip it up and it automatically mutes whenever it's not completely down. So, the and the design overall, when I talked about my impressions, because I, I went kind of through step by step, like build quality, how does it feel? I like flexed it in my hands. I was trying to get it to creak, and it really isn't a creaky pair of headphones at all. It felt very strong. The headband, like the clicks to the headband, they have this nice, like, st- um, they're not hard to click, but once you click them, they stay in place. So I would set this to like five clicks on each side where it felt good on my head, and it would just stay that way. You can like carry them around and set them on the desk, pick them back up again. They're still at whatever you'd set it to. So that was it felt very stable. And then the ear cushions are very big, and they're kind of ear-shaped, so they fit right around your ear, and they're a fabric material. They're not like a vinyl or a leather so they're very breathable, and they Is come off really leather? easily. You just pull them right off, and they're washable. You can just take them to the sink, wash them with like hand soap, air dry them. So the, the build quality I was very impressed with. They seem super solid. Of course, what really matters with these is going to be how good is the surround effect, because these are doing everything with just a pair of 40-millimeter drivers. How good is the base going to be, since we're dealing with 40-millimeter and not 50-millimeter drivers? And just overall, what kind of sound quality are we talking about? Because Logitech had mentioned the word audiophile in some of their uh, literature for this, which kind of got my ears. And like, okay, audiophile. I mean, I've, I've listened to some pretty high-end reference headphones. 
you know, $1,600, $2,000 headphones, plugged into $2,000 amplifiers. And these are $149 and $199 for the wired and the wireless version, which seems high, but if you look at the 7.1 channel gaming headphone market, they're uh, the Razer, I think it's the Tiamat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And the uh, there's another high-end headphone out there that's the uh, Strix, the Asus Strix 7.1. Those are both $200 headsets. Uh, so it's kind of right there with them, but again, only using two drivers, which seems to be kind of a trend I'm noticing that Dolby and DTS headphone virtualization is is supposed to be good enough that you can do pretty much everything you need to do with two drivers. So going into this, I was very skeptical. I used a variety of source material. I used a few games uh, that I knew had uh, multi-channel mixes. Like I, I was playing with uh, The Witcher 3 with uh, Shadow of Mordor or a couple of them that I can remember. And specifically, I remember in Mordor, I was talking to somebody and I just started spinning my character around and I could literally like kind of feel the sound go from where the person was in front of me to they were beside me and then they were kind of behind me a little bit and then I spun around they were they zoomed back in from the other side and they were in front of me again positional sounds like ambient noises chatter you know when I was in the Witcher 3 and you're you're riding your horse around and you can hear the conversations as you pass people in town and they just kind of move from the front of you and they pan beside and behind you a little bit it was all really convincing and I, you it was I went into the, like the Windows uh, properties for the device thinking, is this actually being shown as like a multi-channel device then? And it's not. It shows up as a two-channel device. But if you have the Logitech gaming software installed and you enable the surround effect, you can choose between Dolby and DTS. And then DTS gives you even more options. They let you choose different kind of like stereo sound fields for like two-channel music and stuff, make it feel wider kind of like a hall surround effect. But once those are enabled, it takes care of decoding the signal, which I I didn't really believe it until I just downloaded some... I went to download like movie trailers and home theater demo material. Like I have a, a place near me that has Dolby Atmos set up and I've gone in there and watched their Dolby Atmos demo and Dolby has their own official trailers that are mixed in 9.1 channel surround. And I... I downloaded like the 7.1 channel version of this and listened to it and it sounded great. I downloaded some home theater setup material and the voice that's telling you which channel is which you could distinctly pick out. This is the center channel. This is the left front. This is surround. The only channel that I didn't find convincing is what makes it a 7.1, which is rear surround. In regular surround, you've got center, front, left, and right. And then the surround channels are actually beside you. And then the rear surrounder behind you, left and right. And it's very hard to make sound appear as if it's coming behind you. They could do it by, I'm sure, bouncing sound around. But if you are looking at the review and you go to the uh, the page where I was talking about the two-channel sound, like the surround and listening impressions page, I have pictures of it, the... Uh, drivers themselves very much like in my uh, Audio-Technica AD700X headphones they're not flat against your ear they're actually angled 
inward so it's more like a speaker sitting in front of you. So the sound is is extremely positionally accurate with front surround, but it wasn't so good with rear surround. It was still far better than I was expecting. It was better than like the best sound bar you're ever going to hear. It's just there's no real substitute to discrete channels and speakers behind your head. But this thing did like the best like front to side, like immersive kind of surround that I have ever heard from any kind of virtual surround. And DTS, uh, I didn't think was as positionally accurate as far as the distinct channels. It sounded like it was doing a little bit more as far as like artificially expanding the soundstage. It made everything sound very wide and it added a little bit of reverb depending on the setting you had it set to. But uh, overall, in games or movies, it, it was great. It, it really sounded like surround sound. And when I had that all turned off, and just had them hooked up to my digital audio player or listening through the computer wirelessly to just two-channel music, they sounded really flat. And when I said that, it's like this is not a negative thing. It doesn't sound artificially boosted in the bass. The treble isn't too hot. It's not harsh sounding. There's no huge mid-range dip, that kind of smile EQ where the bass sounds really loud and the treble sounds really loud, but then the voices and instruments and things in music are kind of pushed back into the mix more it wasn't like that it was it was very flat very balanced sound so i can see what they were talking about with sort of the audiophile thing because what you want as an audiophile isn't you know extra bass you don't want it colored right yeah it's it's very uncolored which i was very surprised about the only thing i could really pick out if i was being super picky was maybe just a slight bit of mid-range boost but no more than like Grado, which is known for having a little bit of a mid-range boost. So it, it made things sound a little bit more present, like voices sounded a little bit more loud compared to like some of the other instruments. But overall, uh, my conclusion with these was that they're really versatile. They're, they're well-made. I don't know how long you know, they're going to last because I've only had them for a few weeks, but they seem like they're built to last. They feel very strong. I never had any issues with the build at all. They're comfortable, they have kind of a medium, a little bit north of medium clamping force, which my head, like it was, it felt like it was pushing in just a little bit against the ear pads, but not bad. They never felt uncomfortable. And they're about 13 ounces. Both pairs actually, I actually weighed them here just to make sure. I'm like, wouldn't the wireless ones be heavier with the battery? But they have balanced them out. So they're both the same weight. And it doesn't feel that heavy. On your head, and actually I compared it against like the Asus uh, 7.1 headphones. I was checking out their specs. Those are a pound. They're .99 pounds. And the Razer headphones are about the same. They're like 12.6 versus 13 with this. So it's not heavy. Like the headphones I'm wearing right now are like 7 ounces. And then I've got other pairs that are like 9 to 10 ounces. So it was only a little bit heavier than what I'm used to wearing. They're very wide, though. When they're on your head, they stick out like 2.5 almost three inches from the side of your head. So they feel big, but they're not uncomfortable at all. And the lighting effects are cool. I mean, you can play with that. There's 16.8 million potential colors. You can slide it around. And there's two different lighting zones. You can have, like, the breathing effect or the color cycle effect that I have when I was holding them up and play around with that. And the software worked really well. Like, when I had the newest version of the Logitech software installed, I tried this with both Windows 10 and Windows 8.1. 
And as long as I was up to date, and I actually ended up doing a firmware update on the 933s yesterday in response to one of the comments, because uh, initially you couldn't change the uh, wireless sleep timer, and now you can. So even since I wrote the review and it was published, there's been an improvement. I did that yesterday. You can set it to anything. You can leave these headphones on indefinitely until they die. They can shut themselves off anywhere between 50 or 5 and 30 minutes. So the, the battery life on the wireless was good, and partly just because it has that sort of smart battery control. When I left it at default, they lasted just about the claimed 8 hours at 50% volume. If you're listening louder, and I often was, it's going to last you less, like six hours if you're listening at louder volumes. But more than enough for a marathon gaming session without having to plug them in. I noticed their gaming software has pretty impressive looking EQ. It's pretty, yeah, there's a lot of different options. There's some presets in there, yeah. and you can make your own. And They even call it flat. Yeah, yep, flat was actually the default, I believe. But that's what I had it loaded to when I was doing my listening. Can you uh, change your voice in the microphone? You cannot. Oh, there's. you can switch the noise cancellation on and off. Oh, and I should have mentioned the mic quality. The mic, it was okay. It wasn't, it doesn't sound like a condenser mic like this one I'm talking into now. It sounded like a headset mic, but it sounded good. It was very clear. Yeah. And it's all mid-range. There's like no bass. And it's, so it sounds like a really clear like phone call, like an LTE phone call. So that that headset like also has like a regular phono in, right? It'll do that. Yeah, the nine thirty three comes with a phono splitter, so you can put it like you can connect it to any source. Uh, and then of course it's three point five inch input. So, so how you, how does like that EQ work? Is the EQ only for what's coming out of the PC, or? Yes. You, yep. Okay. When you have them connected with uh, analog in with anything like 3.5, so if you were hooking these up to like your Xbox controller or if you're sure. using it as a two channel with like your iPod or something or your smartphone, did, did there's no EQ uh, controls at all. See, okay. an, did you see an increase in the, in the well, the quality of sound if you used an uh, amp. I'm pretty sure you've got one or two there. The yeah, I, I think the biggest difference for me because I have some high-resolution music, and I have a dedicated uh, Class A amplifier in my, my uh, digital audio player. And it, it definitely makes a difference if you take these headphones from the PC where I have to say I've, the, if they're limited to 16-bit and their default resolution is 48 kilohertz, you can move it up to 96. Uh, but if you want... Like, high-resolution sound is all 24-bit stuff, like the Studio Master tracks. So to listen to 88.2 and 96 kilohertz, 24-bit music, I had no choice but to go analog. But when I did, you can really tell the difference. Like, these, they weren't the highest uh, resolving headphones I've ever heard. They don't resolve the finest details, but they resolved enough. You could definitely tell the difference between 16 and 24-bit tracks. Okay. So part of it was, yeah, I'm using a better headphone amp, but also part of it is I'm listening to 24-bit audio. So the, these, I think, would if you had the equipment, any pair of headphones is going to sound better with higher-end amplification and a better DAC. But the internal DAC on these was just fine, and it's basically going to get you like CD quality and DVD quality. It's not going to get you Blu-ray quality. So if you have some Blu-rays that you want to watch on your computer... 
if you are living in 2016 and actually have an HTCP compliant monitor, Josh. Come on, it's 2016. <laughs> Isn't that what I said? Yeah. Yeah, so get an H. Never mind. So if you actually can watch Blu-rays on your computer and you want to listen to like the will be True HD or the DTS Master Audio, that's 24-bit, 48 kilohertz. It'll play through these headphones. It'll just play at 16-bit. And honestly, I'm probably not going to be able to tell the difference watching a movie anyway. But maybe you can, maybe you can't. But the surround stuff only works through the internal deck. The DAC is actually inside the headphones, which... One final point is a great thing for the wireless because the wireless is not Bluetooth. So unfortunately, it's not going to work with like a, you know, a smartphone or anything through wireless. You have to use the USB dongle that it comes with. But the advantage of that is it's using a very mature technology for the wireless that has a really good range. I could walk all over my house and never lose signal until I went like two or three rooms away and it would drop out once in a while. But And also no lag, right? I I'm not sure because when I was out of the room, I couldn't see my computer screen anymore. What I mean is, like, if you were gaming and like listening, like you did. I mean, you probably would have noticed, like, if it. I was... I didn't notice lag at all. Right. So yeah, as long it as it's within a few milliseconds, then you probably wouldn't notice yeah. uh, audio lag. I wonder if the audio lag kind of is offset by the monitor lag. Uh, if your monitor lags, yeah. I mean, the monitor well, will lag like a few the perfect world, Except, of course, your response to any kind of input stimuli is going to be slower. But, hey, you know what? You're not that great of a gamer anyhow. <laughs> uh, you know, going back to quality, I've got the uh, G35, which is the previous generation, as well as the G230, I think it is. My kid abuses that on, like, a daily basis. And they still... Still kicking? What? Still kicking? Still kicking? Well, still alive and kicking? Yes, the they, they both are still doing perfectly fine. And, and Sebastian, I, I must ask this, because you're not a young man. <clears throat> I mean, you're not middle-aged, you're old. But have you ever actually listened to an A3D 2.0-based solution, namely the old Ariel 2 sound chip when it came to 3D audio? No. It was shockingly really well done. And I still curse the day that creative litigated them into oblivion because it was really solid technology that did amazing things. And they acquired it all after they litigated and they did nothing with it. Made me very sad. But yeah, they're, they're 3D sound effects. You had vertical, you had rear... All these HRTF functions that were really well done with their basic hardware at the time back in 1999. And it's kind of sad that we don't see guys like Logitech and whatever uh, still have not improved upon that. Of course, you know, maybe there's some patent stuff going on and more than likely Creative Labs is is still holding on to these things with white-knuckled fists but boy, it would be nice if we could get some really good 3D stuff again in audio. And especially with VR coming up, it's going to become much more important moving forward. All right. Cool. I think I'm the only one talking here. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we cover yeah, how much? I agree the... with you. I mean, I think okay. that now the licensed properties, to be able to put Dolby you know, on your package, 
has a lot of cachet <laughs> and putting BTS headphone oh, audio on it. I've heard great like it's like simulated 3D stereo stuff, and I I've heard some creative. Like I remember in, back in the day when you had like the jukebox players that had the the 3D effects you could enable, and it was it was always very spacious sounding. But this is more like directional surround. Like your yeah, game no, is mixed EAX in five one. Crap! When it came to direction. I mean, it, they did like some occlusion and reverb and stuff like yeah. that, but A3D had, uh, had really interesting algorithms to to pretend, you know, make the sound pretend that's coming behind you by really adjusting some of the properties audio that, that matches the human ear and how we can determine with just two ears if something's coming from I mean, behind the, us. The stuff they did with mono sound was just amazing. They would make mono sound almost sound like it was stereo. Huh. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So and we will uh, always be thankful for them for that. So the wired version is uh, 137 bucks on Amazon. It's dropped a little bit. I think that it might drop a little bit more, kind of yeah. relative to the market. But yeah, it was announced at 149, 199. Currently 192 and 137. All right. Cool. All right, well, before we get into all the news, we have a podcast sponsor. Uh, this episode of PC Perspective Podcast brought to you by Braintree Payments. Uh, by next year, or maybe even next week, there could be a whole new way to pay. Maybe it'll be the next Bitcoin, or the next Apple Pay, or maybe both. Uh, fortunately, Braintree's full-stack payment system is easily adaptable to whatever the future holds, so you can adapt easily, too. Uh, Accept anything from Pounds to PayPal to the next big innovation from any device with just one integration. And when that new payment method comes out, all you have to do is update a few lines of code. No late nights, no complicated recoding, no stress about the staying ahead of the curve. Braintree Payments is here to help. Or more at braintreepayments.com slash pcper. And we thank Braintree Payments for supporting us folk. Somebody's got to. Somebody's got to, yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, Mobile World Congress news extravaganza. God, I wish that you know somebody covered that. Yeah, had garbage only, coverage. Right? If only, uh, if only one of our guys had. had it it out seems there. like a big show. We should look at covering that. Yeah, we really yeah. should. Yeah. We should. It's really far away, though, and I mean, he, he would want to go a to really Spain. long time to drive there. Yeah, yeah. This would be one of those things where Ryan would want to, you know, take advantage of going out there and. Uh, oh wait. He did. All right. Uh, let's see. What's the first one? Qualcomm announces Vulkan API support in Snapdragon 820 and on other SOCs. Uh, Ryan wrote this. He's not here, but I'm sure Sebastian knows all about it. Uh, I wish I could say that I do. Um, <laughs> API is not really my bag, but... Uh, well, I mean, Vulkan is basically just like a graphics API, right? Right. It's, and it's supposed to be more efficient. And we will see exactly, you know, how it takes advantage of this. Like the A20 has an Adreno core. That's uh, the Adreno. Well, you know, all the current mobile six. stuff is OpenGL based anyway. And this is just OpenGL's answer to DirectX 12, which they kind of got from AMD in their mantle. So, yeah, it, it just stands to reason that there's some hardware and the basis that you need to get Vulkan. And there's a lot of software that you need to get there. 
and you know, kind of we see what OpenGL ES series, and uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just a logical progression because all of Android is is OpenGL ES based, and and a lot of these higher end chips uh, do support the latest versions of OpenGL, so it's not a big jump to kind of change around your your hardware and and be able to support Vulkan in multiple layers and levels just as we have DirectX 12 and the different kind of versions that one has in between AMD and NVIDIA and, and Intel. What kind of stinks about that is even though it's a standard, OpenGL obviously is a standard, the, the versions of it are kind of, they're not just up to what chipset is in the phone, it's up to the manufacturer. Like, for example, Apple doesn't fully implement the OpenGL version, I think they have the hardware to do 3.1, but they don't implement it on anything. A, the 8.20 from Qualcomm implements uh, ES 3.1, and it's kind of all over the map. Like if you're trying to do mobile testing and you're doing graphics tests and you're running uh, like the latest benchmarks, you're going to find, oh, this phone doesn't even run that set of benchmarks because it doesn't have ES 3.1 or this one's on 2.0 and this one's on 3.0 and so it's if if uh, supported hardware is out there and the manufacturers take advantage of it by actually writing the drivers for it essentially like you with a PC you know you buy a compatible GPU you have the drivers installed that support the API you're good to go but it's it's going to be up to the handset maker I think too to implement it I tested it myself on Qualcomm's own like internal device, we will see if shipping hardware all has it. I'm sure that like the new Samsung Galaxy S7 is going to have it. They're going to have all the functionality enabled. I think on the Adreno. Actually, uh, it's it's like they announced that. It's as if they had a demo uh, on a Galaxy S7. Oh, okay. Oh, for a minute I said uh, Epic Games unveils porn star demo. No, 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 no. no. Spain is a very liberal country. That's totally not what that says. That's too bad. Um, But so they did use. Holy crap! Okay, that looks pretty good. (laughs) That's like Osmos in 3D. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 pretty good for running. That's on a smartphone. Okay. So speaking about the Vulcan and the S7, do we think this will have a substantial effect on Gear VR? Do we um, think the Oculus guys will take advantage of Vulcan, especially since they're in, considering Gear VR is kind of Carmack's pet project? I think they'd be silly not to. This clearly is giving you more graphics capability. <laughs> well, and Vulcan also is going to give you a lot more efficiency from what I understand, that uh, certain effects can be done with far fewer passes and, and cycles. So, yeah, I mean, they're going to grab. If, if they can get better performance and lower power out of it, absolutely. Right, because that'll also allow it to run at a higher clock speed, especially if they're utilizing fewer of uh, the CPU cores. Then GPU can get more power, GPU can run at a higher clock rate, and then you can have higher frame rates. I mean, this is a lot of desktop, desktop class stuff going on here in this scene. Like, there were reflections going on, like... Yeah. This is getting pretty good, actually. The 530 is easily the most powerful mobile graphics I've ever tested. But I wasn't going to put too much stock into that, because I'm like, well, you know, this is a a pre-production device. 
Yeah. But it looks like it's going to be kind of a game changer. Yeah, pretty cool looking demo. That's uh that is on a post uh Mobile Congress 16 Epic Games Unveils Proto Star demo on the Galaxy S7 if you want to watch it yourself. All right. Um Next up, then there was a trio of Lenovo announcements. Yeah, the convertible laptops, predominantly. You've got new Yogas, 700 series and 500 series. Um, of course, as I'm writing a review of the Yoga 700, they announced the 710. Oh, well. So, you know. You know. Look forward to that. Uh, so, I mean, how do they even pronounce this thing? Is it just it's Mix? Mix. Okay. M-I-I-X. Are you looking at the Mix 310? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. the 310. Two-in-one, 10-inch tablet. 230 bucks. That's for the base configuration. Uh, it only gave base pricing. So I assume that it's going to be... I mean, it is base the big pricing, difference is the screen. But it does come with the keyboard. Like, some of these things don't come with the keyboard, and you have to buy the keyboard later. If it's a, like a convertible tablet kind of thing. Yeah, because right? it's all about the base. Well... Um, yeah, no, for two twenty nine, like it reminded me a lot. Looking at the specs, it reminded me of the Dell Venue Ten that I reviewed a year ago. Yeah, which was a five hundred dollar tablet that you then had to spend, I think, one hundred and sixty nine dollars for the keyboard base. They didn't so release it, any other pricing from the looks of it. So, yeah, so the 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 big deal with this is even with lower specs, it's still running Windows Ten, not Android, so you can actually install desktop class applications on it. Yeah. And it has the keyboard trackpad base in the box with it. So you can get started for two thirty and actually have a tablet with a real keyboard that runs Windows. So that's really cool. I'd like to see what the screen looks like on the two hundred and twenty nine dollar model because of course they're showing a nineteen twenty by ten eighty IPS screen. Yep. But not announcing pricing for that just yet. They yeah. announced the two twenty nine yeah. for a a different screen. I didn't see specs on it. I'm guessing it's probably a 720 or like a 768. Oh, I'm sure uh, it's 768. My only quibble with it would probably be that they're saying they're using eMMC for storage. Yeah, there's I mean, it's it's got faster that... Faster eMMC There is faster. Like it just, EMMC it, 5 is eMMC is, is usually just fine as long as you're doing mostly reads. It just starts to choke when you start to throw in some writes. So if you're kind of power user E with it, it won't take much to get it to just be suddenly noticeably very slow. Like, yeah, the last Leva that I reviewed, it was about 40 megabytes per second writes. That's not terrible. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not super fast, but it's kind of like that. those old, like, uh, smaller SSDs from, like, 2009, 2010. Right. It's you just could that, read it at, like, 100 and write at 40. Yeah, but EMMC just behaves differently. Like, when, you're, when you mix writes and reads, like, the writes will actually cause the reads to stall and stuff like that. Mm. So it actually kind of causes extra latency and, like, delays to happen. Probably has an SD card slot on it, I um, imagine. Probably, I think. Um, did not see it in their specs for the mix. Huh, maybe not. What? Well, seems odd. It seems like there would have to be, like, a micro USB on this thing. Maybe I just missed it. I'm looking on the edges of it. It's yeah, hard to you tell. Because really it There's... would be on the tablet part if, yeah. it, if it had it. Well, we'll know more. Yeah, they don't. They specifically don't have that in the specs, though. But it does have USB ports, so I mean, you could just, you know. Mm. Oh yeah. Yep. You wouldn't be able to run around with just a SD card just stuck in it all the time. 
uh, if you had to have an adapter like plugged in USB, but yeah. All right, uh, next up from the Lenovo stuff, Yoga 710, which is what Ken was just griping about. Um, actually, it's going to come in two sizes, too. Uh, 11-inch and a 14-inch. Huh. And the 11-inch is using a 1920 by 1080 IPS panel. Ooh. Okay, so wait a minute. So then what's the 510? It's the Core M version. Okay, so also two t- sizes, uh, I think. Um, yes. Yep. Yep. The fi- okay, uh, so the, the 710, just to break it down, the 710 comes in an 11-inch for 500 or a 14-inch for 800. It's kind of like the full-power version. And then the 510 is a 14-inch for 600 and a 15-inch for 699 Huh. I honestly Actually, can't. am I backwards here? Because we're talking... Yeah, the, the 710 is using the, the Core M5. Well, not the 710-14-inch. Oh, I see. I'm looking at the 11-inch. I can't tell the difference between the 710 and the 700 having... Like, actively reviewing the 700. I can't tell a specs difference. Is the 700 on 6-gen... Yeah, it Alex is. The, the battery is a bit bigger in the 710. It's like a 45 watt in the 700, I think. 45 watt hour. What kind of uh, Wi-Fi does it have? Uh, AC, I think. Oh, the display is it two port by two? on this. Uh, to, I'd have to look again, but I think so. Because okay. 11 is one by one or two by two, which is optional, and it looks like the 14 comes with two by two. Huh. So I'm sure there's some, you know, it's a, it's, it doesn't seem to be like insanely new feature model at least although although the larger size screen available is probably the bigger deal the smaller it. size screen available smaller mm, they, didn't they, have, added they the 11 11 inch version in the 700 before okay so i don't think so what model am i looking at right here the 710 this one. Oh no that's that's the yoga 900 oh never mind. <laughs> now i'm getting all confused <laughs> i'm looking at the yoga 710 specs on a yoga 900 okay um all right so Yoga 710, 11-inch, 500, 14-inch, 800, 510, 14-inch. Seems in line. Yeah, 600. This is kind of the expected inch. iterative update with mm-hmm. a slight slight change in specs, and it looks like they might be using different screen panels. Someone's asking what the weight was. Well, it's probably it should weigh this. Not same. a whole lot. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that much of a difference. Yeah. These are pretty light. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. Last one over one, I think. Uh, Vibe K5 and K5 Plus smartphones. See, I, I this was the most interesting of of the little group from Lenovo for me, just because it's kind of in that position that the Zenfone Two was, where it has on paper some really impressive specs. If you're looking at the K5 Plus, looking at these two phones together. I almost don't see the need for the K5 because the K5 is at 129. Yeah. And then you have the K5 Plus at 149. They're the same size device. You just go from a apparently non-IPS screen at 720 to an IPS at 1080 for 30 bucks. And you jump from a Snapdragon 415 to a Snapdragon 616. That's a $20 difference. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's only twenty dollars difference. Yeah. I can't add, but yeah, even even more ridiculous than why yeah. would you not buy the K five plus? But I'm sure the K five might have better battery life with a lower screen resolution like that, but and a lower end SOC. 
Yeah, because it looks but, like the battery is the same capacity for both. Yeah, so. yeah. And so, it, but otherwise, I mean, the specs on paper look great. I think it's there's still some hesitation about Lenovo. Uh, you know, people are worried about privacy. That's all I heard about last year. Whenever a Lenovo post would go up, was you know, well, they're spying on you, this and that. Well, you know what? It's all of this stuff comes from the same place. Lenovo, Asus phones. Then Lenovo actually has been competing in an international market too, more so like Asus than here in the U.S. So to see these handsets that were probably more of like a European thing come over here and they actually have Qualcomm SOCs in them instead of like the Intel stuff that we saw a year and a half ago for less money, it's kind of impressive. Like depending on what their UI is like, you are buying an Android smartphone unlocked for 150 bucks that has pretty good specs and an, and an IPS screen with 1080p resolution. So, yeah, if only my wife would quit breaking her phone and Lenovo would like support Verizon's network, it'd be nice. Both those things. So they're saying their OS is Android 5.1 Lollipop. Is this just like a base? Are they still doing that? Or are they doing like a heavily modified OS? Does Lenovo do that, or I, they just do vanilla? I, I think they've walked back. It's not quite vanilla, but I think it's getting pretty close from what they're talking about. When close they're to talking just about vanilla. June. Yeah, I'm, okay. I, I think I think their skin is pretty light at this point. All right, good to hear because I always hate when they like froof the heck out of the, you know. Speaking about froofing the hell out of the Android operating system. Oh, is that the next one? Uh, LG G5 smartphone. Oh. Yeah, that well, it's it's froofed in some way. Um, all right, so let's see. Uh, LG G5. Oh yeah, this is the one where it has like the bottom section that like unclips and slides off of the phone, and then so you can change the battery. Like that's their way of. Now, does the battery just like slide into that thing? Also, I guess. Yeah, I'll say. Different. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You can have a different base mm-hmm. too, so you can like. Okay, so they have like a. The battery pops off of the base. Like, the base pulls out, but then the battery clips out of the base. Yep, yep. But And each one of the accessories that you can get for this, the battery clips into that accessory, and then that whole thing slides into the phone. So, like, that big yellow thing you see in yep. the pictures is the battery. It's like they're packaging it specifically to be, like, exchangeable. And, like, you would... Hopefully, yeah. hopefully their branded yellow battery doesn't cost, like, some super premium compared to what the battery would actually cost, like... You know, anywhere well, else. Well, Alan, this is a premium device. Oh, so. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, yeah. It's, that's a really awesome design. It is It is a really cool design. You can, like, swap that. Where's the... I know we had more pictures of that bottom section. Or did we? Uh, well, Ryan did a hands-on. He's got a video. If you oh, go yeah. to the post, you can see it or you can find it on YouTube. Uh, and... Something was there, up with his video recording when he did that. But I, I think the lights in the booth were PWM controlled. Yeah. So, not all. Oh, there he is. He's holding that. That's a pretty big battery, actually. Oh, that's thin. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's under three thousand milliamp hours. It's like twenty eight hundred milliamp hours. And then that's a different base for it, right? Like that's the that's the camera, camera base. Yeah, which adds a little bit of battery. And like decade camera buttons, and gives you sort of a place to grab on. If you're I was hoping for inter- when I saw this initially, I'm like, oh, interchangeable camera, like you could put a better camera sensor on it. No, it, but it does add battery life, and it does add some buttons, like Ken said. Yeah, 
And then there's the DAC, which is interesting. Yeah, there's a DAC. B&O branded, Bang & Olufsen branded DAC. Yeah, B&O Ice Power modules are in almost, well, not, not anymore, but they used to be like the default. If it was Class D, it was a B&O uh, Class D MOSFET system. And now there's, there's other stuff too, but like they're, high, they're very refined. Like they've been doing it for the longest. And the sound coming out of these, I would not be surprised if it's very good because it's got a dedicated uh, amplifier to go along with a high-resolution DAC. Yeah. And then the value add is that you can clip the battery off of it, put your base back on, and take this to your computer, and it has a USB Type-C connector on it. You can hook it up to your PC and use it as an external DAC and headphone amp at your computer or your laptop. That's pretty cool. Although I'm not really sure how much I'd be wanting to change out the part on my phone. Like, Yeah, I would want to leave whatever that thing was on the phone. Yeah. I like, oh, I'm going to listen to music on my PC now. Let me take apart my phone. And well, I mean, if it's... Uh, probably doesn't really count so much as taking apart like this no thing just, but this thing just like unclips out yeah. the bottom you know it's meant to be like a fast thing um you know it's a cool idea though yeah all right uh let's see what's next here uh lgd5 that's just ryan's head oh, that's just ryan yeah. messing with it okay so Move that's along. pretty much the same thing yeah all right uh next up htc how do you pronounce that? Vive. Just Vive? Yeah. Not Vive or something nope. weird, silly like that. Uh, HTC Vive launches in April. 800 bucks. That is a HTC VR headset, which we've heard about off and on for a while, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's kind of the other big PC VR headset out there. This is the one that Valve is behind and the yeah. HTC is manufacturing for them. What's the purpose of the dimples? Uh, I think there are cameras in the dimples. Oh. There's okay. at least one camera on the front. Because it's figuring out where it's at just by looking at the room? Is that what it's doing? There are IR emitters you put in the room on this one as okay. opposed to the camera on the Oculus. So this is acting like a Wii moat. Yes, I believe. Which Is this the one they had in the MSI room at CES? Yeah, I think so. I remember watching them set it up, and they're, like, squaring off an area. And, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. The, there's the emitters. Yeah, yeah the, those, the, those dimples will, you know, it's, it's all positioned with IR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, they're like, with the Vive, they're kind of going with room-scale VR is the thing. Is yeah. what they've been demoing, although you can do the normal stuff like you would expect from... Just sitting at your desk. Yeah, sitting at your desk, cockpit view sort of thing. The interesting thing is this is $800, whereas the Oculus is $600, but this comes with the motion controllers, okay. which will probably be about $200 for the Oculus when they come out later this year. Yeah. So it's kind of a wash either way. No one really knows which one will be better yet. Huh. And when I first saw that, I'm like, $799, really? And then, like, oh, wait, the Oculus comes with an Xbox controller. So, right. I, yeah, like you said, it's kind of... We don't this have... is the problem with having... A brand new technology, and you have incompatible products on the market. So we don't have any kind of specs on this thing, like resolution and refresh rate. Uh, they've they've been said. I think it's ninety hertz. It's a, it's slightly higher resolution than the Oculus, I believe. But I don't really think anyone's pointed that out. Like okay, because Ryan's had hands on with both of them, and neither of them seem to be the clear. Nothing like super groundbreaking differences. Yeah, yeah. it's probably well, I mean, gonna be more of a software support thing. Yeah, I mean they're effectively first gen 
kind of things as oh, far yeah. as retail goes. Yeah. First gen. Um, uh, speaking of VR, Valve will release a Steam VR performance test. Hey, maybe I should run that. Uh, Probably. Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, as far as I understand, you can run it even if you don't have VR gear, right? You that's just, the entire point. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the whole. It's just. Doing, Are you ready? It's just doing like what uh, you know VR pipeline would do, just except without the VR headset, and it's using all of your hardware. So as far it's just like a free download, right? Steam. Yep. You just look it up and pull it down, and it does some sort of a. Um, it's one of the scenes from Portal. It's like a Portal-ish type scene. I think there's like a Portal VR demo they've been showing off to press, and I think this is probably like like that. Yeah. It just gives you a nice little, uh, nice little scare that scale there, yeah. al- along with the fidelity thing, which is interesting because it's like that's like what it had to do to maintain the refresh rate. Like if it had to reduce the fidelity of the scene on the fly, yeah, I think so. To try to keep the refresh rate at as close to ninety as possible, and like try to not drop frames. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll tell you like how many frames it dropped if it can't sustain ninety, and it'll yeah, t- it'll try to tell you if you're GPU or CPU bound or both. It for like people with twenty six hundred Ks and thirty seven seventy Ks even overclocked, it's been saying they're CPU bound, which huh, it's a little difficult to believe. I don't know. Just depends on what that test is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because there there will be more simplistic games in VR that don't rely on high fidelity graphics. So, so like saying you're not ready for VR is kind of a weird thing. So can you run this with like uh, DK2 or something and like actually see it the proper uh, way? And probably, stuff, I would imagine. Yeah. Okay, be cool. I should like look at that tomorrow or something. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. Uh, next. Oh, yeah. That's me again. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, this thing's sitting on my desk over there. I've been, uh... Gathering dust. No, I've been toying around with it. Um, <clears throat> Jorba launched a B810i 8-base dual iSCSI SAN. So, this is basically like a supercharged version of the original Drobo Pro 8-bay. Um, whereas that one came with just like a single gigabit port for you to do iSCSI over. This one has dual iSCSI and it has like a, a third port as well for, um, which I think only goes 100 megabit, but it's only for management. <laughs> uh, so you can actually have like technically out of network management. So if this thing was like on a, a you know, private network in a building somewhere and you want the IT guys still be able to like see its status, you, they would just connect to the, over the management port. Um, got some other cool features to it um there's uh some you know it- explain to me this yeah you've got eight drives you yep. can do it in multiple configurations yep why are you a max of 180 megs of read and 110 writes uh well the 180 is actually really close to two gigabit ports which is all that it's transferring over oh okay yeah because so that's like- 125 Gigabit is, is 125 megabyte per second is is one gigabit minus a little overhead, so it's still a little slower than than like a bonded pair. Yeah. Of gig. Yeah. Um. It is. I mean, you're going through. But other... what about rights? Oh. Ten man. Well, the rights. I think is more. Because here's the thing: it's not actually a bonded pair. Oh. It's iSCSI. Which doesn't work over bonded pairs. Okay. So um, you can you would have 
you know, iSCSI targets mounted through this, which can be over two separate ports and like one user on each side. Um, but I think as far as the rights goes, I think it can really only handle just like one full port saturated worth of worth of rights. Oh, right. Okay. Because um, it has to, you know, it still has like, um, I don't know how many cores the CPU is, but it's basically some kind of like, you know, Marvel or probably like some kind of ARM CPU in there doing all the doing all the heavy lifting and it's trying to do translation to like Drobo's specific file system and it's trying to span stuff across drives and like it's basically it's not hardware raid technically like it's actually all the raid stuff is being handled in software because this is not your typical kind of raid where yeah but how expensive is this device oh it's like 1600 bucks yeah so with how ARM SOCs are these days that's not really an excuse to get two gigabits out of the thing like yeah i don't think we can give them that one anymore because you can get some well the previous ones were pretty bad yeah actually so as far as comparing with previous models the specs on this one yeah but that model came out seven years ago yeah yeah (laughs) um they have added some other stuff to this to make things much more interesting and that is how it handles caching so you can actually have like you can plug in one or two actually you do as many as you want, technically, but you're offsetting hard drives by doing it. You can put one, two, or maybe even three SSDs into this Drobo in place of some of the hard drives, obviously. Um, so you can have, like, say, five hard drives in it, three SSDs in it. And the SSDs, there's not even a configuration for this. It is completely hands-off. It'll just go, oh, hey, there's SSDs over there. I'm going to use those as a hot data cache. And so it just intelligently figures out how it's going to work. If you only have one SSD in there, it only does, like, um, caching that would just be for reads. Because, remember, it's trying to keep everything duplicated. So it'll just have, like, an extra copy of stuff sitting on the SSD that's uh, stuff that's frequently accessed data. Um, And that would be handy for, like, things that people tend to run as an iSCSI target, which is, like, people can have a VM installed on an iSCSI target. So if you're trying to use a VM and boot one or multiple of them, you'd want that stuff to be more on the SSD than on the hard drives. So it can cache stuff like that. If you have more than one SSD in there, it does the duplication, the same kind of duplication it does for its hard drives. It just does them also to the SSDs. So now it can also cache writes and stuff like that, um, which is cool. Uh, new to this model is a thing called cache preheat, which is actually pretty interesting because, like, a cache is like caching hot data, right? And well, it's, if you have to shut down the Drobo for any reason or, you know, p- power loss or you're just doing maintenance or whatever, right? Um, when it comes back up, typically things that have a cache, the cache just gets blown away when the device reboots or anything like that. Uh, this will save metadata like because it, it knows what blocks are cached because it has to be able to index them and access them and stuff like that while it's running. So it just occasionally takes a snapshot of that metadata, and it just saves it. So when it reboots, it's you're using SSDs as your cache. Like, the data's still going to be there. You just need to know, have the index saved somewhere instead, as opposed to RAM. So it does that, saves that, that, um, that information off, and then when the drumroll comes back up, you know, it just basically just re-indexes the cache, like, immediately without having to see what's where or anything like that, which is cool, because then, like, you won't have some period of time where everything is running real slow and only accessed on hard disks for, you know, X amount of time after you did that restart or, you know, reinitialize stuff. Um, 
And it's got all those same other features, like when I tried to break Drobo's before in the past and, like, yank power while the thing was trying to start a rebuild or even trying to recognize that I just removed two drives in a row from it. Uh, and they, like, always come back and just, like, pick up from where they left off. They're extremely good at that. Um, so, yeah, this thing is uh, $16.99. But remember, this is, a, like, a business class device. This is the kind of thing you'd have sitting. Actually, they even have a 12-bay mount model that comes, that's just designed to be rack-mounted. This model, they actually have, like, a rack-mount kit um, for it. So it's really meant to be, like, your small business kind of... Small business is, like, as small as you should go for something like this, really. Um, the other thing that we're testing at the same time is a B810N, which looks pretty much exactly the same on the outside, except it works more like a NAS as opposed to a SAN. Um, and then there's a... Both of them fired up on the desk there. And uh, I spent a good portion of the day fighting with an Intel Quad... Gigabit Nick that didn't want to... Intel Nicks and Consumer OSs. Uh, yeah. Well, that, Intel Server Nicks and Consumer OSs. That part wasn't so much the issue as we just had an older Intel Server Nick that oh, yeah. didn't want to negotiate. Like, So here's a weird one on you. You plug in... Uh, I had four of these cards, by the way. You plug in a PCI card and your system just doesn't see it at all. Like, BIOS doesn't see it, Windows doesn't see it, nothing. Like, that's just total head-scratcher kind of territory there and then ken's the one that figured out he's like hey try to like force pci gen 1 on that port on that pci slot sure enough card just didn't want to negotiate it, uh pci gen 3 because it wasn't a new enough, new enough card and uh something there wasn't causing the motherboard it, to yeah that, to fall that back. apparently has some old pcie 1.0 bridge chip that doesn't like telling motherboards that it's 1.0 and yeah that was annoying yeah. and a waste of time. But anyway, so uh, we're testing a couple of those Drobos and an IOSA 1515 Plus and a couple other things. So I'm about to do like a slew of NAS and uh, SAN review stuff coming up soon on the site. Uh, next up. Hey, Sebastian wrote this one. Uh, mechanical Keyboard Survey. Yep, there's a couple of enthusiast sites out there. This is GoMechanicalKeyboard.com. That's pretty good URL. They did a winter survey. They got almost 1,000 responses from their readers, and I was kind of scrolling through. They have this really long, really nice infographic on their site. I just used bits and pieces of it for our article, but definitely go to their site, check it out. It was interesting to see, though, because I would not have guessed, first of all, like, if you look at the favorite mechanical switches results, Cherry MX Brown for all purpose and gaming won pretty easily among their readers. And then for typing, it was MX Blues followed by MX Browns. I would have thought maybe there would be more clears, maybe so the, more Topre or red. The blues are the ones that don't have a click to them, right? Oh, they absolutely well, they do. They're the most oh, they, clicky. Oh, they have the mo- they're the most. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so oh, the ones, tactile. Okay, so the blues are the ones that actually make the click sound. Yes. Okay. That's the browns why. are a linear switch, just like a black, but yeah. they have a little bit of like a gritty feel to them. They have a little bit of a more they, feel. They, they feel kind of like blues, but they don't make the sound right. that the blues make. Yeah. They, have, they don't have that that half press where you actually hit the actuation. You have to push it like the rest of the way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you they're linear, but they have that kind of that little yep. bit of a click. It's I actually like a gritty well, feel. Like the keyboards that I use are browns. Uh, I have my blue at home. I love it. Yeah, I, I use a red here at work, and I just actively well, dislike the, it. Okay, so the reds are the ones that it's like really. There's just, no click. It's just a spring. Yeah. That's it. And just, they're very yeah. fast. Like you can, I think reds are faster than blacks, aren't they? Like you don't have to use as much yeah, force to uh, actuate so. it. That's why they're pretty close to the top of the list on the gaming section there. Yeah, because you can you can do rapid key presses. But but one thing that I came from this was, you know, I know it's an enthusiast site. I wasn't aware of 60% as a keyboard form factor at all. Oh, yeah. So I had to go look this up, and I put a little graphic in the article. I have a roommate that uses a 60% keyboard, and I I can't – I have no idea how he does it. Isn't that also like what the Mac wireless – Keyboard but the Macs is? have function keys. Yeah. This oh. is even smaller than that. Wow. So so what they do is you end up mapping, like... It's function F keys and stuff? Yeah. To, like, there are a bunch of different macros that get set on, like, control or, not, like... Uh, there's usually a function button in the first row with yeah. the control and all and stuff. And then they're just... Everything is mapped out to huh. function every key on the, on the board to do different stuff. So, what, like... Why would you just want a small keyboard? Is that why? Yeah, I think so. I don't it's, particularly it's, understand it. Like it. T- ten keyless keyboards and these sixty percent keyboards are super popular with enthusiasts. Apparently, well, well I mean, they should be much cheaper than. Uh, no, not really. No, no, no. no. I mean, you're you're buying so many less cherry switches. Yeah, but when they don't make them look, as high volume. Their okay. their winner for favorite mechanical keyboard was uh, the Vortex Poker Three. Okay. I looked, I looked this up on Amazon. It was on Mass Drop. It's currently closed there on Amazon. They sell for between one twenty nine and one thirty nine, depending on which uh, color, which switch you get. They have them in pretty much all the Cherry MX switches, and that had like thirteen percent of their overall vote, followed by the Cooler Master Quickfire Rapid, which I believe is a TKL. The Vortex Poker Three is a sixty percent keyboard. The Quickfire huh. Rapids, a, a 10 keyless keyboard. And then the first one on the list that was actually a full-size 104-key keyboard was the Corsair K70. Yeah. That's what so, I like. And on this, I was looking around on the website, and they have their own picks, and they actually picked, I think they picked the, they picked a full-size keyboard, I think is their, their favorite overall. But there's different categories. I mean... There's it's so much about preference, obviously. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about key switches and I mean, I could I could form see factor. I could see maybe for for like even gamers might like the smaller keyboard footprint because now you have more room for a bigger mouse pad, and if your desk is just kind of small anyway, or you know maybe I guess I can kind of see it. I don't know it. The whole sixty percent thing it, to me is just like because we can. I mean, is why been, people we've been do at QuakeCon an awful lot of times. I don't recall seeing many small keyboards like that. Yeah. At the BYOC, it it like it doesn't seem like a gamer thing to me. It's more like a programmer thing. Just, really, I would think programmers would not want to go. I would well, say programmer doesn't use the F key pad. very often. That's what I'm saying. Well, like uh, I would, it. I would want F keys and stuff. And mm, I don't know. If you write in C all day, you don't need your F keys. You only really need, I guess, the standard ninety or whatever. I would love to see like a. The results, like you can go and see what people are, what graphics card is the most popular on Steam, and like the, yeah, 
like if because it's obviously going to be survey based you can't just like spy on somebody and see what <laughs> keyboard they're using or maybe it could be like reported as long as like the way the AMD gathers gaming information for their uh what is that add in to the catalyst center um I know what you're talking about. What's that thing called? Um, it's like the hardware survey thing that's built in. Yeah. But I I kind of extended it out to the comments. I wanted to know what people were using who are reading our site. Because I'm like, is everybody on TKO on 60%? And not everybody, but there are absolutely people who will only use TKL now, 10 keyless, who don't want a number pad at all. I wonder if part of this is just like desk space or yeah i think that's a 10 keyless thing it's like if you're not doing productivity things you're just gaming you don't really need a number pad ever people seem if you're very not, very enthusiastic about they're these. very passionate about their oh, keyboard yes. form factor and switches yeah like, i love the one uh one response from i'm looking Ford at Drune. oh wait. he said at home he's got a dos keyboard model s pro with mx blues at work, he uses an IBM Model M from June 1992. That would be clicky-clicky. Nice. Oh, yeah. Buckling springs and... I'm pretty it's... sure uh, I have a couple of those in my garage now. Yeah? That were at my dad's place. Yeah. Those yeah. are sweet. I and they're them. actually worth quite a bit now. Might need, like, a PS2 to no, uh, no. something Wait. adapter. Uh, you re- it's fairly trivial to replace the, the PS2 interface with, like, a cheap little Arduino thing. Oh. And just reprogram it. That's what people do with Model M's mostly. That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a teensy or something like that. <laughs> there are 40% as well. I, I I believe. 40% keyboard. Yeah. it's That's called it's a like, smartphone. It's like just 26 keys or something. Three, 3% of respondents said that they preferred the 40% form factor. Oh, yeah, that's just being goodness. esoteric and hipster. Yes. Well, and 2% preferred Dvorak to Cordy. My well. roommate who uses a 60% also uses Dvorak, so you oh. can't believe anything he says. <laughs> so Dvorak and 60% keyboard. Anytime I try to go to use his laptop or phone, I instantly get pissed off. <sighs> I've never even tried to use Dvorak. It's awful. Uh, Scott's saying that the manufacturer of the Model M keyboard is in Lexington? Huh. Interesting. Yeah, we need to go. <laughs> Break in. We need to go and break in and get some keyboards. Uh, all right. Uh, next and last news thingy, I think. Of course, there are more more surround headset news. Yeah, you'd think that this is like a, a thing all of a sudden. Everybody's uh, getting in on it. Well, they have, but of course, the last big. seven years, how many more headphones manufacturers have we seen? Yeah, companies Lots. that never made any audio products before now make yeah. headphones. These look just like the mic boom just detaches, I guess, because it doesn't. Well, look like I will it. find out soon because I'm holding those headphones in my hand right now. Oh, oh, so Forcer has sent these along. These are the Void Hybrid. They are the wired, non-RGB version. I believe it's non-RGB. Fifty millimeter driver. They're using virtual seven point one Dolby surround from those two stereo drivers. So I'm. I'm curious. I mean, I haven't even taken them out of the box yet, but these can be used with analog or USB just like those Logitechs. And 50 millimeter driver promises maybe some enhanced bass response. 
And as long as the software is good and the virtual surround is good, these could be a great value because the retail on these is only $79.99. So very curious to see how those sound. Their other announcement was just a white version of their existing uh, wireless RGB version of the Void. Huh. Cool. So more on that. Actually, wait, does that work with the Corsair keyboard software yeah yeah well if you have the rgb lighting i think you can have them kind of talk to each other i don't know if this one necessarily does i haven't gotten that far into it yet so that's uh i I do like that keyboard software from corsair oh really yeah i like it i hate it it's kind of cool it gives you an awful lot of flexibility it's a steep learning curve it's been a while since i've tried to use it but it's gotten better it's gotten better it was really horrible at the beginning like ken was the first sacrificial anode for the uh Hey, here's this RGB keyboard. Let's put it on Ken's desk and see what happens to him. And uh, yeah, the software's gotten. Much it, better. it has stopped crashing on me in the background, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. For the it first used- six months, it would just crash my, all my. I would see the lights on my keyboard stop. I could tell the application was crashing, and then it would eventually come back. Yep, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um. All right. So look forward to that review from Sebastian. And then next up is, hey, no more news. Thank goodness. Hardware software pick of the week time. Yes. Uh, we got no Ryan first. And, yes. Uh, he's probably sleeping. That means it's all about Josh. It's all about Josh. It's always it's about all, me. It's all about Josh. Hashtag.com. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, you know, I realize it's closer to the new generation of stuff on 16, 14 nanometer, but that's still going to be a while away. Many rumors abound saying April, June, July, August, but I'm not holding my breath. Or even at GTC. Even at GTC, which is what, next month? March? Yeah, sometime in March. April. Yeah, they they may announce, but they're... Oh, no, it is is the first week of April this year, sorry. Oh, okay, well. But anyway, they're not going to ship. No. At that. But they may announce. In the meantime, if you're really choking on all these new games and you want something nice, then hey, this MSI GTX 970 is cheap. It's like 270 bucks, and you get a copy of The Division thrown in for free, which is, you know, it's nice. It's like a $40 uh, yeah, I've been using the previous generation of this 970, and it's worked really well. I've got that running in SLI right now on, on my main machine. And, uh, you know, I think for the uh, 270 bones after all the rebate, it's it's well worth its price. And it's going to keep you happy for a while. And, yeah, a new free game that apparently is quite decent. Hey, it's, I, like, I like how they have a limit of five per customer in case you want to do more than four-way SLI. Quint. Quint SLI. It's like, I, I can't put this fifth card in. There's no more slots. Darn. All right. Cool. Looks like a good deal. Uh, next up is me. So, I ran into this. Um, I had, like, a bunch of old archives sitting on the array since, you know, I'm crazy and have, like, huge, huge tracks of storage. And um, and I came across this thing from, like, a few years ago or more that was just, like, this archive that had PAR2 files to it. And, uh, and I... If for some reason, I left it all sitting there because, like, something was broken with it, and you would try to, like, fix the batch of files with, like, the PAR files. And, like, QuickPAR, which is the normal thing you use for PAR2 files, for 
those that are wondering, Alan, what the heck are you all talking about? When you download stuff off of some places on the internet or like news groups or places where files are packaged in like a large group of files that you have to like kind of make sure that they all got there in one piece and correct, and sometimes that's not the case. Like a PAR archive is like a group of uh, files that you use. You kind of apply them to that other set of files, which could be like RARs or a large file or whatever. And it's basically checksum and like parity data. That's why they call them PAR. <laughs> so it's kind of like a RAID, how you have a parity data, you know, and you can have a disk go bad. Well, with PAR files, you can have chunks of the file that they're protecting go bad, and this thing can reconstruct them. Well, for some reason, something was funky about, like, the way that the, the files were aired out, and, like, they couldn't be fixed for some reason. Quick PAR just would, like, not do it correctly, even though it had enough data to be able to put those pieces back together. And so I'm trying to figure out, oh, is there maybe something better out? And lo and behold, and I hadn't looked at this for a while, and uh, apparently PAR 3 is out, and then there's a guy that made a much newer version of the front end, because Quick PAR is like gotta be five years old or more now, and uh, this is essentially a brand new version of what Quick PAR used to be. Looks exactly the same. Hmm. Has some extra features now. Uh, it'll use like all of the CPU cores in your system simultaneously, if you wanted to. It'll also use GPU acceleration, if you tell it to. Um... And it uses the PAR3 format, which is much more flexible than the PAR2 format. Like, PAR3 can go and do, like, nested subdirectories. It can actually do, you know, subdirectories underneath the directory that you're doing the check on. So you can you can actually make, like, PAR files of an entire hard drive full of stuff if you wanted to. Um, and then, you know, some sectors could go bad on that hard drive, and you could still piece that data back together. Might take it a little while if it was a whole hard drive full of stuff, but it is possible. Um... So kind of cool. If you're basically, basically, if you're a person who uses PAR files for anything, uh, quick PAR, just I would say don't bother using that anymore and move over to multi PAR, which is now the thing to use. Uh, next up, last but not least, Sebastian. Okay, so I was messing Little around Sebastian. with what's that? <laughs> Little Sebastian. Yeah. I was messing around on my PC with emulation the last couple of days, and I have never actually tried to emulate PS2 before. I have some PS2 games that just sit. I don't want to play them because they don't look very good on my bigger flat panel TV anymore. And I've so I was playing around with it's uh, what is the name of this? It is EPCSX2. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yes. just, if you yeah. just Google what I did, if you Google <laughs> PS2 emulation, it's like the second or third result. And in January, they released a new version of this, 1.4, which has some improvements, some refinements. It lets you manipulate the emotion engine now. You can overclock it. You can underclock it. What I was doing was you can, you can go up to it has DirectX 10 slash 11. It's really running at 10. But I put it all on my GPU, and you can have a nitroscopic filtering. You can enable uh, up to like 16x. You can change the actual rendering uh, uh, resolution. Like the, the internal resolution, like the standard is some really low. It's like 512 by 488 or something, on depending on the game. 
I was running Final Fantasy twelve earlier, just the disc I grabbed out of my basement. And I got it from looking like a smeared looking kind of PS two game to looking like a PS three game hmm. after I tweaked these settings for about half an hour. So this I, so hold on, hold on. So you're saying that PS2 emulation is now to the point where you basically just grabbed a disc out of your basement, threw it in your PC, and played a PS2 game? Yeah, you can run it off the disc, I believe, and I, I just actually made a quick ISO from the disc and then loaded it into the emulator, but it took me about 10 minutes. But, yeah, it'll, it runs... like I, PS1 emulation is mature enough. You could have done this a long time ago, but yeah. with this software, it was like so smooth. And I, you can like... You can look at the limiter, see how how far you can go. And at first, I thought, "Oh, the performance is terrible." And I realized that I was on the uh, CPU uh, render yeah. option. Yeah. So you just use the drop down under the GPU settings, choose GPU render. It shows you your graphics card if you have it installed with the driver properly. And then you can start manipulating. Do you want it DirectX nine, DirectX ten, OpenGL? And once you choose one of those, you can start manipulating like what resolution is this game actually going to be rendered in. You can change it from the native resolution that the PS2 would have displayed to anything you want. So you can make this thing render at 4K if you want to, if you've got the horsepower for it. So I was running it at, uh, it also had, it does custom resolution or you can choose like a multiplier. So I made it multi, uh, a plus four or a times four. So yeah. it was, multi, it was uh, actually rendering the game at 4X original res and when i added anti-aliasing to this and kind of played around with some of the other settings it looked phenomenal like suddenly i'm like this this is how good ps2 games could have looked all along but you know if you even if you own the games already and you have a ps2 like i do this is just like a fun thing to do like how good can i make these games look and there's there's some footage out there there's some examples they have on their site where stuff is looking pretty impressive so is that what they're referring to as the quote-unquote overclock is just like the Making the resolution higher or? Uh, different things. Like, I didn't play with any of the motion overclocking yet. I was just messing with the actual rendering engine and the uh, filtering. Oh, okay. Because it's, can... it's kind of a mind bender because the CPU in your system is probably going faster than, like, the. Like, technically, it's already an overclock, <laughs> kind of. But Yeah. And Emotion Engine was this weird thing that they only did with the PS2, which is the reason that you still don't have backwards compatibility with any of the newer PS3s or. Or the PS4. So yeah. it's this separate chip that did stuff that I'm not really familiar with. And but That they are emulating in software. That we are emulating in software now. And actually, in not just on your CPU, in your GPU, all the GPU stuff is being handled by your discrete card if you have one. And then you can, you can choose whether you want it on the CPU or the GPU. But um, I went from like seeing 40% to 60% of the original uh, speed of the game yeah. on just software to 100%, even when I push it up to 8x resolution. <laughs> so I mean, they're compati- they have a compatibility stats here on the left side of the site, and it's like huh. almost 95% playable. 95% of, like, there are a lot of PS2 games. Of, of the 2500 or so PS2 games, like, <laughs> that is impressive for stats. It's for very mature. And they keep on adding to this from looking at these uh, old release notes. They have made so many changes and improvements to this. Well, I know uh, uh, Dolphin has had a lot of, you know, stuff go on for the Wii stuff, right? It was Dolphin. Yeah. Right? Dolphin. Yeah, Dolphin is the GameCube and Wii one, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just had no idea that uh, the PlayStation stuff had gotten to this point. No original Xbox emulation. 
So yeah, still no original Xbox simulation. Shocking. Yeah. Well, it was just a damn PC. Well, yeah. I mean, I've actually considered, like, because I'm trying to set up an emulation rig and stuff, so this just answered my question on the PlayStation end. Um, I was already working on the Wii end, and, uh, but I was still, like, I have two modded Xboxes in my basement, and I'm like, okay, how, how big of an IDE hard drive can I put into this? <laughs> <laughs> to put to dump all of my Xbox game rips onto. What was this? the biggest one they ever made? Was it 320 or did they make a 500 gig? I think you can do drive? 500s on ID. What that came in the Xbox? No, oh, no, that you I, can I, just buy. Oh, I had a Western Digital 320 gig IDE drive. Well, what people are doing now is you, they're just using a SATA converter. Oh, really? Because you can get a SATA to IDE converter. Oh. that's just basically a PCB. It's it just adds yeah. like a hey, and then put the that two the terabyte M SATA SSD <laughs> in there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that system would even recognize a two terabyte partition? Well, see, that's the other thing I was researching, and apparently, two terabytes I think is the highest you can go. Uh, really? You, it, because... you have to make a bunch of drive letters because the drive letters there's like a volume limit of oh. capacity, but you have to like. But I figured since the loading off the hard drive was done in homebrew software, anyways, that they might have been able yeah. to get it past that. But I guess not. It, it, you still need multiple drive letters. They all just have a games directory under them. You know, it's just yeah. like D colon slash games, E colon slash games, F colon slash games, right? But it's um, <laughs> I think it, it was either one or two terabytes is what. You know, I'm sure someone that's doing this already knows right off the top of their head. But the thing is, uh, well, I guess you would obviously need that much space once you go up to like the the newer generation consoles. But you don't even need. Yeah, I wonder what the entire ten Xbox terabytes to do all the Sega and all the Nintendo is. stuff. The, the Xbox US set is not that big. Yeah, uh, but if you want to start including like PAL Europe. Yeah. Japan titles and stuff like that. No Xbox games ever came out in Japan. Are you like, kidding me? All of them all together, I think, are like two and a half terabytes. Huh. Um, but how many of them are I, good? I know it's because I have them. Well, there's and Halo no, and there's not. Halo Two, yeah, and, uh, which came out <laughs> for the 360 is like a. Or are they downloadable now? Aren't they? Uh, there are set. There are like they're on the Xbox One. All redone. Heck, just yeah. get them for the PC. Yeah. Yeah. Can you get Halo and Halo 2? Yeah, you can get... Uh, that's where Not I played Halo them most 2 of the anymore, time. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Halo 2 was based on that thing, the Vista thing that went that away. That DX10, yeah, Vista. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like their... What was it? Their, like, game marketplace or something? Or is that... Oh, no. Yeah, games for the, Windows. There was Live. some... Yeah, there was some way to get it or something, or something with their server, like the back-end server stuff, like you can't play it online anymore or something because their servers went away. Fair I don't know. It was one of those things. Lame. Yeah, retro gaming is still cool, even if there's crap stuff that you have to deal with every. Yeah, so. retro gaming is. I I like retro gaming when it's like, hey, somebody has an old game system. This is cool, and you like hold the old controller, then you feel kind of connected to that era a little bit. Yeah, and then especially if it's hooked up to like a CRT TV, and you've got that whole experience. But for the most part, I'm like, I want this to look better. Like for a PC, I always want the graphics settings even higher and higher frame rates, and so that's why it's like some of these newer generation consoles like this ps2 emulator if i can make ps2 games look like ps3 games that's awesome yep there's that and then uh with some of the other emulation stuff the newest technology is actually making it way better like i always used to play r-type and r-type ran at i think it was 50 or 55 hertz on a crt it did not run at 60 right and there's like nothing like every time you tried to play it, it was just this either teary or juddery mess on like a PC monitor. Now 
with G-Sync and FreeSync, it just works because the screen just goes at that refresh rate and it matches perfectly and everything is just so it's it's so funny because like that was the that was that threshold that it took for to actually throw me back to feeling like I was standing at the arcade game and playing it because it was always just such this juddery mess trying to emulate it on the PC so anyway all right uh so that wraps up the thing <laughs> um don't forget you can get show notes and links to all the stuff we just picked and links to all the articles we just talked about at um, pcpro.com slash podcast once this goes up. Uh, which uh, Just keep checking the homepage. Just, just refresh, refreshing refresh, refresh. it over and over yep, and over. Yep. And add $1 to your Patreon donation every time you hit refresh. It's like a drinking game. Um, the links for the following of the stuff is twitter.com slash ryanshrout or twitter.com slash pcper or me who is twitter.com slash malvintano or but ryan's always pimping the site stuff so follow ryan follow the site and you'll get all sorts of links back with yeah, interesting yeah. articles that we post throughout S- the day sebastian you don't happen to own twitter.com slash josh tech do you uh no mm. i don't unfortunately josh probably owns that one yeah i'm sure or ryan yeah probably uh, all right. Well, that uh, that wraps up the show. Uh, I guess we will talk to you guys. We're not doing a live thing before the next podcast, are we? I don't think. Not that I know of. But I think there's one after that. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll subscribe. see you all. slash subscribe. Yeah. PCPro.com slash subscribe. You'll get the, the emails. Uh, and uh, we'll see all you guys next week. Um, Alan Melvin Tunnel. I'm Josh Farris. I'm Sebastian Peake. Thanks for listening.